Welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. We hope you'll come along for the conversation, and you can be part of that conversation by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 65. You'll also find related notes and links for this episode at the same place. I'm John Polstra. And I'm Greg Monteith. Today we're here to do some untangling of some Christianity. We're looking at comments, a comment, from episode 35, which was titled, Love is More Than Grace. This comment was left by Melinda. And Melinda, our deepest, uh, sincerest, heartfelt apologies. (laughs) This comment was left way too long ago, and we, for whatever reason, didn't see it and then have not responded to it in a very timely manner. So Mm. I want to throw out to all the listeners there, if uh, something like this happens to you, just drop us a quick email and say, hey, guys, did you happen to see whatever or, you know, those kind of emails are fine. And if, you know, maybe there's some conversation we have out there that has unintentionally uh, been dropped, uh, an email to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com is welcome as well. So mm-hmm. we'll just get into this comment and see where it goes. So Melinda writes, well, she has like A, B, and C, so I'll just read them all. They're sort of related. Anyway, I'll just read them, and you can also find them on the website under untanglingchristianity.com slash 35. Wow, so much good stuff here. I'm glad you again mentioned the illustration about the parent risking his life to save his child from an oncoming car. I see what a different orientation toward God I would have if my response to his sacrifice was, well, you love me so much, of course you did. My focus would be on how great his love is, rather than on my worthlessness to deserve such an act. This is such a different way to think of it, and some may find it insincere or flippant, or fearful we may take it for granted. But maybe taking a little more for granted would be exactly what we need to do, question mark, or at least internalizing his love more. My struggle is that the Bible slash teachers don't seem to always present it this way. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I vividly remember a sermon illustration. Since a sinner was defined as someone in rebellion to God, Jesus' sacrifice for us would be like someone giving their life to save the life of a person who was running toward them with a grenade. In that case, the person with the grenade who was rescued would say, I didn't deserve this. I am so unworthy. And then in parentheses it says, the attitude Christians seem expected to have most of the time. These illustrations are different, but both seem to have truth to them. Not sure what to do with that. Any ideas on how to reconcile these? So that's one. The second one is, I can identify with the discussion that sometimes Christians are encouraged to get in touch with their badness in order to feel close to God. If God feels far away, just realize anew how holy he is and how sinful you are, and then his grace will seem more amazing, and you will be more thankful and in love with him. True how grace shows up more in relief, in contrast. Good point that feeling close to God may need to involve being preoccupied with him rather than our wrongs. Reorienting to love. It has been interesting to sit in church and hear sermons and sometimes notice the amount of weight grace is given over love. I have never noticed or thought about this distinction before. So in these settings, I find it helpful to remember the why of it all, his love for me. And I really like how Greg said in response to my first comment, 
In other words, grace is that mode of expression by which God most truly expresses God's self. Grace shows God's love in its truest and best light. And then her third point. In a few random podcasts I've listened to, I've heard Greg mention self-love or loving oneself rightly. I would appreciate more discussion on this topic. What does it look like? Why is it important? Biblical slash experiential evidence. How does a negative view of oneself impact your relationship with God? What steps are involved in loving yourself rightly? Interestingly, in the past month, a Bible teacher explicitly said that love of self is not biblical. She said none of the Ten Commandments relate to loving the self, whereas some of the commandments do relate to loving your neighbor. She discussed the verse, love your neighbor as yourself. The impression I get is that she thinks that, quote, as yourself is just a reference point. In other words, don't harm others because you wouldn't want to harm yourself, etc. Not an explicit command to put time and effort toward loving yourself. So, I love that. That's those, a great comment. <laughs> it's really, really got a lot going on. Of those three potential podcasts there, which one should we uh, go after today? Or all of them? I don't know. Where do you want to start? Well, I, I don't know. what what um, I'm happy with any of them. Um, oh, you're throwing it back to me, huh? I'm kind of throwing it back to you. Do you have a preference? I well, the the one that the one that kind of pushes some of my triggers is uh, the last one, where okay. the self love and uh, this Bible teacher's note about the Ten Commandments and this I don't know. <laughs> it's intriguing to me that well, intriguing, frustrating, funny. I don't know what the right word is, but like, why is the Ten Commandments? the measure for <laughs> whether self-love self is right or wrong. Like, that just seems so arbitrary to me. So what is it about, I'm hearing you saying that it seems random. It seems like a random thing. I mean, I'm open to you proving me wrong here, but it it just seems like a complete straw man. That Okay. In other words, the, in other words it's, it's the classic appeal to authority. Normally, we would just... Appeals to the Bible as a whole, you know, some random verse means it's true. Well, in mm-hmm. this case, we're going to appeal to something even bigger—the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. Which, depending on how you look at it, well, that's in the Old Testament, and you know, does all the Old Testament apply after the New Testament? Oh, some would say not really. Depends on what it is. It's complicated. Uh, so it's just kind of funny to me. It's like, well, based on the Ten Commandments, it's not biblical to love yourself. To which. I want to say a bad word that starts with bull. Because it's like, <laughs> come on. Like, it just doesn't make any sense to me how you can just, it, it all goes back to the whole, you know, empty yourself, become nothing, don't exist, because that's the best way to operate, which doesn't, I just cannot wrap my head around that. Okay. No, no. And that's, that's good. Like, because I wanted to dig, if, if you don't mind. Dig away. A little further, because, and then and you've kind of, like, on the one hand, yeah, the empty yourself thing. I guess on the one hand you're saying I'm hearing you say that it seems random it seems like you're you're just you know pulling out a verse or pulling out something to to support your point of view and I mean in some of the books we've read we've we've seen that a lot and and so I'm wondering if there's anything about this particular situation and you also made a parallel with the emptying yourself is it is it how much does self what seems to be almost self-denigration how is that part of this for you or is that i mean how what words would you put around that for me it's the idea that it's i guess we should the caveat to to insert here is 
we're dealing with a topic third hand here. So mm-hmm. <laughs> Melinda had the experience of hearing this person teach. I didn't. I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. So we're maybe potentially not working with all of the information, but working with the information that we have here, I think the part that really gets at me is the idea that that there should be no love of self. Because I think without love of self, you kind of cease to exist. And I don't know, so much of what I've read and learned myself is if if you don't love yourself in a healthy way, mm-hmm. you're limited in so many different ways. And if the goal is to be the best version of who we are, I don't see how not existing accomplishes that. Right. So it sounds like you're seeing the orientation that this, whomever this Bible teacher has put forward is, is almost contradictory to the whole purpose of the whole value of being in relationship with God. Yeah, I don't know that I would think of it that way. Yeah, because I'm still kind of grappling with that whole like, what exactly does it mean to be in relationship with God? What does that look like? What does it feel like? Right. How does how do I experience that? I and that's still kind of elusive for me. Sounds like though that if you don't have any value, I mean, I guess I'm trying to sort of my the thrust of I guess where I'm coming from is to find out is this sort of you saying, hey, this isn't logical. This doesn't work out. Like you're making a contradiction. You're asking me to believe that. So don't kind of play me along here. Well, or it's, it's twofold. It's one. It's one, it's it doesn't make logical sense to me, and mm-hmm. two, just feels kind of random to just blame it on the Ten Commandments. Okay, like what? Why is the Ten Commandments the source? And this would be the classic church situation where you know you'd be at the little Bible study or the little teaching time, and someone <laughs> would be like, "Well, the Ten Commandments never refers to loving yourself. It's not the Eleventh Commandment, so therefore it's wrong." And, you know, there would be no, at least in my experience, there'd be no room to raise your hand and be like, what? Why the Ten Commandments? Like, why the, yeah, where? So I, that's the part that I think just gets me. You're, an appeal is being made to an authority, to an authority that's, I don't see speaking to that topic. And yet you have no right to question it. Yeah, that's a side, that's, that's more baggage I'm dragging into the conversation, I think. <laughs> Hey, well, hey, I, who said you couldn't? There's no carry-on limit here. <laughs> there is no carry-on limit on this flight, Johnny. You can bring all the baggage you like. I might fill the hole underneath of the plane, too. We'll see. <laughs> we'll just get another plane. <laughs> no, well, okay, because when, when, when that strikes me... Yeah, what, do you, what, what, what happens for you when you read something like this? Well, the... F- First thing that strikes me is that the idea, like I, it hits me on a logical level, just like you're saying, like, oh, hold on, there's a contradiction here. And then, yeah, I hear what you're saying about, oh, you're, you're using the Ten Commandments, but hold on, there's a bit of a, uh, something's not quite right there. And then there's this, this kind of, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I guess, which is fine as part of my baggage too, is, you know, I, I don't like being told things that I have no ability to to uh, question. I mean, I can even question that I shouldn't go through a red light. Um, I'm going to get zinged for that one pretty badly, depending upon what happens. You know, I might get a fine. I might go to jail. 
but there's a there's a process I can go through. And so part of yeah, all those things would bother me. I think the thing that would bother me the most though, and that would I would really want to call into question is not so much the illogic of bringing in the 10 commandments and saying because it's not in the 10 commandments it's it's there's a problem with it like i don't know because i don't know you wouldn't talk about creation in light of the 10 commandments because the 10 commandments aren't supposed to be talking about creation that's not what they are it's not their point but i think the thing that really gets me is that that uh the last sentence there which says the impression i get is that she thinks the quote as yourself end quote is just a reference point and then in brackets don't harm others because you wouldn't want to harm yourself etc end bracket not an explicit command to put time and effort into loving yourself i guess what gets me out of this what i find to be the hot the, the pressure point for me is my value is you're really dropping the, the bottom out of my value and in my life, I've seen what's happened and in other people's, people's, people whom I value and who I, I think well of and whom I love, I've seen what happens when we drop the bottom out of their value. When we do that, we can treat them any way we want to, or at least that's how I've seen other people do it uh, because they don't have any value. And so the logic, the illogic, the lack of logic, the contradiction that really gets me is that last sentence because I have no idea how a reference point can possibly mean don't harm others because you wouldn't want to harm yourself because there's already time and effort put into considering myself and who I am and examining my life and thinking, Hey, gee, how did it feel when that person treated me like that? Oh, that felt pretty crappy. I don't want to do that to this guy. And so that contradiction on the level of real life, right? I don't, I don't have to be a super skilled exegete and biblical scholar right? When I think about the last sentence, the last sentence gets me because it's me as hopefully a mature and responsible human being saying, yeah, I don't like it when people treat me as though I have no value. So I sure don't want to be treating other people that way. But that revolves, involves even in itself, that's already a conclusion. It's not just an observation. It's already involved a lot of time and effort towards loving yourself, which are her, Melinda's last words there. And so the notion that somehow I'm supposed to explicitly care for others in reference to myself without giving any consideration to how I care for myself, but I am supposed to give consideration to how I care for them, is those things don't go together at all. Yeah, yeah and I would want to qualify too. So there's nuance like i'm not advocating a narcissistic love fest with yourself like (laughs) (laughs) well put (laughs) in other words there there are degrees here there are Mm -hmm. i don't know if it's shades of gray i don't know what it is but it's it no i'm not i am not advocating that it yeah i'm not advocating that 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 we should be going to the opposite extreme, that we should be going to this extreme of, yeah, of narcissism. I, I, I think mm. narcissism is the only word I can think of that would come up with this, you know, this complete preoccupation with loving myself. That doesn't, mm-hmm. that doesn't work either. I, I see it as more of just kind of a middle ground of 
loving myself means taking care of myself in healthy ways that hopefully don't negatively impact other people at the same time. I don't know if this is cheating or not. If it is, if maybe if you'll allow this, but if we if we go up to, I mean, I sort of didn't I didn't think we should kind of earlier as we were talking. I was like, I don't think we should do the whole of Melinda's comment here. I don't think we could do it justice in one podcast. But maybe we can bring in a strand from earlier. And I think part of this for me too is not just about me thinking about myself, but me thinking about myself in terms of that relationship with God, and specifically in terms of what the New Testament seems to qualify as a love relationship with God, uh, a relationship filled and undergirded and, and, and realized within and by truth, yes, but it's a love relationship. And where God loves us to that extent, the idea that I do not love myself undercuts and diminishes the love of God for me. And that, I think, is incredibly dangerous. Say and more th- about that. That I'm not sure that totally makes sense to me. Oh, how, how can you... <laughs> this is the part that I would be totally shaking my head at. You know, if I was sitting in there in the class, and it's one of those where the hand goes down and the head goes... The hand goes up and the hand goes down. Head goes down. It's like, oh my gosh, do I, <laughs> I'm going I'm to have to say this. I'm going to have to say this. Because the the thing that I find so distressing is that I think one of the greatest issues, probably the greatest issue in the church is this imbalance in one direction or the other between truth and love, love and truth. Typically in the evangelical church, I mean, I've said this lots before. I think we've talked about this. (laughs) We may have. We just may have. Once or twice. But typically, you know, in the evangelical church, truth sits over love. Biblical truth is more important. If you've got to defend something, you defend the Bible over, you know, what it, is, what it means to care for another, to love uh, the other person, to value their views and, to th- and their readings, perhaps, even of the biblical text, if we're talking about Christians with different perspectives, to value those as much as I value my own. doesn't mean I'm going to agree. I still may, not, may disagree at the end of the day, but that's the end of the day, not the beginning of the day. In the liberal church, it's the opposite. Love sits over truth. So if you read somebody like Greta Vosper, with or without God, there's a whole lot of love there, but it's not founded. It's not founded on some, what I would think are better ways of approaching the biblical text to get better understandings, to have more truthful as opposed to less truthful bases out of which to think about who we are, who God is, and how the two should relate. So, what I was originally saying, I guess, is that if I am not valuable, if I am not to be loving myself, if that notion is not biblical, how on earth is it biblical? In other words, the idea that I am, that I have no value, that I don't love myself is indicating that I don't have any particular value or significant significance. God thinks that I have incredible significance. The way in which God loves me, and as I, again, I've once or twice tried to argue for, is, is mind-blowing. It's huge. And out of that, it doesn't mean that I'm the center of the universe, but that in a certain just earth-shattering way, we all are epicenters of God's love. We, God focuses on us and adores us in a way that's just extraordinary. And if we're coming, these two 
perspectives then don't mesh. If I, if I don't love myself, if, I, if, that's, if that's unbiblical for me to love myself, then the notion of God loving me and valuing me that much doesn't make sense. Why, what, what's God seeing me? That God's really seeing something. God's not imagining things. God's not making it up, right? God truly loves me. I mean, this is, the story in this text is an extraordinary, I mean, go back, go back, go back to, Gen, to, to the whole presentation of the covenant. I mean, Deuteronomy is, is fantastic in this regard, right? And, and Deuteronomy 6, where um, Moses is presenting this. I mean, we've talked about this before too, you know, uh, we're talking about fearing God and loving God. And it, and in Deuteronomy seven, as we go on, uh, I'll just read a couple of uh, a couple of the verses here, beginning with verse seven. And this is in Deuteronomy seven, verse seven. It was not because you were more numerous than any other people that the Lord set His heart on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that He had sworn to your ancestors that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who maintains covenant loyalty with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And he repays in his own person those who reject him. He does not delay, but repays in his own person those who reject him. I'm not too sure what that last verse means. I have a couple yeah, of ideas. <laughs> well, that notion of repaying in his own person those who reject him. I mean, I'd be, I'd be really curious. I've got three commentaries on Deuteronomy that I'm working through. It, it, it. Yeah. But this idea that God didn't choose Israel for any other good reason, no, no quote-unquote good reason in the ancient Near Eastern setting. Right. If you were numerous and the typical relationship between the divinity and, uh, uh, human beings is a, is a master slave relationship. Well, you got more, you got more minions. So choose a lot of people, choose a big, big people group because you're going to have more minions and they're going to do more stuff for you. And you're going to, you're going to, you know, receive more glory and honor or whatever or appear more mighty because you've got this uh, vast people group who, uh, can more easily dominate other groups and whatever. But that's not the point here. The point, specifically coming out of the first three of those four verses, is uh, God chose you because God loves you. And God uh, is the type of God who sticks with you. And so, I don't think it's possible to honestly engage with and believe in and accept the love of God. To accept God essentially communicating to me you are wonderful. I love you. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm attentive to you. I, I, I'm, I'm sticking with you. And yet on the other hand, to say to myself, no, self-love's not important. You're not important, Greg. You're not important, John. You could, John could say to himself, because that's not biblical. So I'm thinking about some of our previous conversations where me, you have been critical of the way that people have used the Bible in applying a particular section of the Bible to themselves or to us today when this happened so long ago. So if I'm just reading this passage and I'm thinking, okay, who is this to? This is to Israel. Mm -hmm. How is it okay to take 
what God is saying to Israel and say, okay, well, God loved Israel, so he also loves us. Like, well, how do we know yeah. this isn't just specific? Now, I'm trying to be really on. I'm trying to be consistent. You know, mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. if we're going to criticize these other people and say, well, you can't take that verse in the Bible and, you know, mm-hmm. Jesus says to pick up your cross and follow him daily. So, you know, in the New Testament, that's what it says. And so he told those people in that time, and that applies to us 100% today. We need to do exactly the same thing go off in a number of directions with that. But but if we're, we've discussed that at de- in depth and said, well, yes, but it's more complicated than that, and it was in that t- day and age, how can we come to this passage and do the same thing, not do the same thing? Sure. Well, I mean, uh, on the one hand, yes, it is addressed to Israel. But it's it's an address in the, I mean, right here, in, in that very passage, um, in verse 9, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who maintains covenant loyalty. This is the presentation of the covenant. This is an indication of why God chose you and what that means in relationship to the covenant. And we are those now who, although we are not, I mean, I'm not by background uh, Jewish, uh, and I, I'm, I don't I'm think not you either. Are. No. Okay, neither of us are. And yet, what has happened through Jesus as being the Messiah, the Christ, is that the promises made to Abraham, you know, referencing back into Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, those promises to, through the people of Israel, for the whole world to be blessed, have allowed for the inclusion of all people in what? In, in a new covenant, which means what? It means the possibility of being in right relationship with God. And what does that look like? Loving God entirely, the, 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 the cornerstone, the, the principal piece, the center. Loving God entirely, loving yourself rightly, loving your neighbor likewise. And of course, that loving yourself rightly is already conditioned by the fact that you are supposed to be in a love relationship with God, where you do what? You love God entirely. So it's not saying that you're excluded I'm not excluded. I don't not love myself because I've just gotten no love left because I'm loving God and that's all I'm doing. No, it's that that larger relationship is conditioning and informing all of my subsequent, all of my other relationships. But in terms of your question, I mean, there's, there's covenant continuity, right? There is a new covenant which does not totally abolish the old covenant, right? There, there are, there are still the reality of, of, God acting in a certain way. Why out of love? Why did God choose? What was this purpose in, in election? And election, I'm speaking about Israel, right? That's what's going on here. And I think that's, that's the center, the central notion when it comes to election, in fact, is Israel. So, but, Can that apply to us? Yeah, because I think that there's, we are part of this new covenant. So break, I'm, now I'm going to send this in another tangent. Because of this pops in my head. So if... Christ opens it up to everyone. What happened before Christ? So you've got Israel. Like, what if you weren't part of Israel? Were you just hosed? Um, in a certain sense, yes. In a certain sense, no. Because the, you mean the whole. Uh, so here's this. I is should great, know all this, but it's been too long since my Bible no, school. No, yeah, yeah, I, I don't know if you should or not. Uh, so <laughs> it just Christopher, popped in my head. <laughs> No, that's a good question. Christopher Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. No relation to N.T. Wright, but a, but a fantastic guy to read. 
Uh, he's got Old Testament Ethics and the People of God. He has written, one second, other book right here. More recently, he's written The Mission of God. These are big books, and they're fantastic, and they deal with just what you're talking about, the Old Testament, with what it was saying, with its relationship to Christianity and to, to sort of present-day living for Christians. He's got one that's older called Living as the People of God. And one of the points um, – hold on. I, I, I've, I've lost the, the, the scent of your question. Remind me again. It was this – Okay, so what I heard you say was th the covenant was with Israel. And oh, then are Christ you opposed to not Israel? Christ comes along and opens it up to everyone. Yeah, so then yeah. I'm thinking, okay, there's a gap there. There's a gap between when it's just with Israel and then when it's for everyone. So yeah. in that intervening time period, what ha what about those people? Right. Okay, so one of the things, I mean, Wright does a, a lot of great stuff. Um, one of the things he'll, he's, he's mentioning in this, living as the people of God, is that, um, first of all, the, he calls them, uh, how does he refer to them? Charitable law. He breaks the whole law down on a number of different levels, different kinds of law, criminal law, civil law, family law, cultic law, and something called charitable law. And he talks about how this idea of charitable law is woven all through the Old Testament law, and how there's this, this enormous emphasis on those who are disenfranchised, those who are weak, those who are aliens, foreigners, and how they're accepted, how even slaves are given uh, rights and uh, roles. And in other words, the, the whole system is far more open and flexible and inclusive than anything, any parallels it would have in the ancient Near East. And particularly in terms of people coming in, it's possible for people to come into the system. You know, it's not a system that's designed necessarily to go and, um, what would you say, be, uh, I guess, bringing in more people. It's not designed to be, uh, there's no apologetic thrust or there's no kind of uh, discipleship program inherent to, you know, biblical Israel. But, you know, the other thing to bear in mind, too, is that when God's, I, I wish I could find it here. When God is talking about the people coming into the land, when the, or pardon me, when the Bible is is referencing God speaking to to Moses or whoever about the people coming into the land, that they're taking the land particularly because the people in it have done such heinous things. So it's not just that God is willy-nilly giving them something, but that this is a particular area, and God's in a sense using the Israelites to really go in. And this is this is the only incidence of, uh, if you like complete annihilation of a people group. There are all the other references. We may have talked about this before where, you know, there'll be a, a, a charge by God to go in and take this area and subdue these people and kill everything and kill all the animals, blah, 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 blah. And then two verses later, is, is it reminds the Israelites not to intermarry with them. Well, huh? <laughs> so, I mean... In every other occurrence, except for the taking, the initial taking of the of the land, that is a formulation. It's an ancient Near Eastern formulation, like 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 an idiomatic expression today would be, uh, you know, we went and kicked some ass. Well, you didn't actually put your foot on anybody's behind, right? It means you you dominated, you you overwhelmed, you were victorious, and this is the same way of expressing that. But I guess the idea, coming back to your question, is everything that I see in terms of the Old Testament. There's only one incidence where it's like the, this people group, they're, no, 
I, I want nothing to do with them. And in fact, in a certain sense, you Israelites are my instrument for just overwhelming these people and getting them off. And, you know, I guess another point that we might want to think about is we don't know this text, the biblical text doesn't tell us what interactions uh, Yahweh might have had with this other people group. Did Yahweh in one form or another approach them? Did Yahweh uh, attempt through other means, less invasive and less total, to dissuade them from their practices? I don't know. That's a fascinating thought. I would never... Well, it's the whole thing with Abraham too. You know, how many people did, it, did Yahweh approach who didn't say yes before Abraham? You know, come into the land that I'm going to show you. And then Abraham was faithful and followed. And I think we might want to ask ourselves, did that necessarily have to be the first time God did that? I don't think so. I, I don't know of any other occasions. I'm not suggesting that it was not the first, but it didn't need to be. So, the, you know, the, in other words, we need to be careful that we don't think that what this text is doing is presenting us with the whole of history or the whole of science or the whole of anything. It's presenting us a sufficiently whole picture of God, of who God is, of what human beings are, and of what the relationship between the two should be for us to be able to come to some decisions and to make choices and hopefully to enter into that type of relationship that the book, this text is promoting. And then a lot of things get in the way of that, right? It's, you, you hear certain, even, even this, what we're talking about here, we don't, we're not supposed to love ourselves. Well, how on earth am I not supposed to love myself? And yet I'm supposed to believe that God thinks I'm incredible. How does that work? How am I supposed to value somebody else and really think about them as myself when you say that I haven't really taken any time to explicitly love myself or consider myself? Well, of course I have. And it seems like to me, I guess, the thing that really gets me in this comment, this final comment, part of Melinda's comment is that once again, it's not about me. I'm not really involved. I'm not really important. And if I'm not important, God's love is stupid. It's ridiculous. It's a joke. Or maybe God's just got no taste or... Say more about that. Well, come on. Like we, we talked a little while ago. It wasn't one of our recent podcasts, you know, God is not an idiot. <laughs> yeah, 33 or 31. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So it wasn't so recent. <laughs> but I mean... No, I, 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 I strongly believe, and my experience is very strongly flavored with this reality of God loving me deeply. And I strongly, thoroughly believe that God loves everyone, everybody else, just as much as God loves me. And I am overwhelmed by how much God loves me. And it's not that, oh, you know, Greg, you're the most valuable person in the world as though... You know, you, you, you've got something in you that, that I need to get like a, I don't know, like I've got, I don't know, a big bank account or, you know, I'm the most, uh, um, I've got the, the, the most holy character or, or, or most, uh, the best reputation or I, I don't know, any of these other things you might think might uh, attract someone to you or I'm the most, uh, 
physically attractive person or a physically capable person. It's not value like that. But God sees in us, there's a love relationship as a parent to a child, right? And when that relationship, which can work wrongly, it can, that can be for many people, you know, that doesn't work for me. My parent was not a good parent. They were not a good person. And I, I get that, personally speaking. But when that relationship is working right, that is an incredibly powerful example of what it's supposed to be between us and God. You know, and I value my children. Do I see other children who might do things that my children do and do them better? Yeah, maybe. They may be better at X or Y, but I don't value them more because these are my children, because I love them, because I've seen them be born, because I recall, you know, the, the worries and the, the, the wonderings and the, the hopes and the dreams that we had before they were born. And all of these things that go into making them unique and special and just the complexity of who they are. And I don't, I, even as their parent, like I don't even have a, a full grasp on that, but God grasps that fully in terms of who I am. And God is fully engaged in that. And God is also engaged in me being enthusiastically engaged in my own life for the betterment of my life, the diversification and the enjoyment. God wants all these things. Why? Because then we become fully human. And then we do what? We fully mirror Christ through both our character, which is Christ-like, which completely should be in conformity with who Christ was, and our personality, which is what? It's individual. It's down to us. It's us taking all of the creativity we can bring to any situation and applying all of the responsibility that we may have in that situation and being ourselves before God and before ourselves and before others and living in the world. And I think that the presentation that whoever this Bible teacher has offered is, it doesn't make sense on so many levels and it leaves us stagnant. You know, and I think my response, the other thing I'd say, the last thing I'd say is my response to being loved by God and to feeling the depth of that is, is love. It's just unbelievable love that makes me orient myself towards God, that makes me orient my activities towards God, that makes me, when I do things that I know are wrong and that threaten my relationship with God, my first response is, I am so sorry. I love you. I, I, I'm so sorry. I, 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 I so regret that. As opposed to, you know, oh, that was wrong of me. I'm bad. Yeah, here I am, a sinner again. Well, yeah, those things may be true, but at the first, the kind of deepest reality is that my, that's that relationship and the love of God draws me back. And when I cut myself off at the knees by thinking I'm not good, I'm not valuable, I shouldn't love myself. In fact, that's quote unquote not biblical. I'm denying God. I'm saying to God, no, 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 you're not right. I'm right. And I think that's, that's interesting. <laughs> I think that risks being idolatrous, actually. So there, I don't know, maybe that's too much of me going off on that, but that's a heavy, that's a heavy topic for me. So how would you sum all this up if there was one, one thing that do you think people should think about or maybe explore next or take away from this conversation? What would it be? Well, I liked your early comment, you know, why are you going to the Ten Commandments? 
I mean, if, if, if you trust the, the biblical authors, so do you trust them? Ask yourself that question. Me, I say yes. And do you think that they got, they more or less got Jesus right? And I'm not, you know, do you think that they quoted him correctly? And I would say, yes, I do think that. So when I hear, when I read in the Gospels that the greatest command is to love God with all that I have, to love God entirely, and the second command is like it, to love my neighbor as I love myself, which must mean the logic of that is I love myself rightly and thus am able to love my neighbor the same way. If you believe that the gospel writers got it right, and you believe then that Jesus was essentially indicating that this is what the whole Torah was, is telling you, then you must condition everything you read in the Torah through this formulation. This formulation is what we would call in biblical scholarship, the hermeneutical key. It's the lens. This lens focuses the entire Torah. If you read something in the Torah that would supersede or contradict this thing and you're a Christian, you must think again. And then the other piece is to ask yourself, I think, what, how do I understand the reality that God loves me? How does that make a difference to what I do in my day? How does that make a difference for when I do things that I don't think I should be doing? How does it facilitate me coming back to God? And how does it facilitate me caring for others and caring for myself? Thanks for listening to the Untangling Christianity podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So leave a comment on the website at untanglingchristianity.com slash slash 65. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are released or other news, subscribe to our mailing list, also available in the right sidebar of the website. We welcome your questions, comments, or suggested future discussion topics by email. Send those to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is made possible by Kevin McLeod over at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Tune in next week for a new episode.